The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, so the last few weeks we've been going through uh, various groups that are in and around Israel. Uh, some of them you see very clearly in the New Testament. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to mind as uh, predominant groups that are around the time of Jesus and that are in and throughout the land. And so you're relatively familiar as you read the New Testament with them. But last week we talked about the Essenes, which is a group, not a group that you see mentioned by name in the New Testament, uh, but they are a group that highly influences many of the people that you see on the scenes. In fact, much of the ideology of the Essenes you see permeate the New Testament church in Acts. A lot of those same uh, ways of living and same ideas of, you know, of how to uh, live in communion with one another and in, in relationship to the Lord, we see already kind of germinating in this group before Christ in the Essenes, and it seems to have a, a really lasting influence. This group uh, the only way you might have heard them by name or mentioned or something would be in connection with the Dead Sea Scrolls because it is thought that the Essenes, at least one group of the Essenes out near the Dead Sea, were the ones responsible for recording the Dead Sea Scrolls and stashing them there in the caves that are now located at Qumran. The Essenes were known for their communal ownership of property, and, and I do think it bears repeating here that we have to be careful because that idea of communal ownership of property has different connotations. In Acts, we see the church having this same kind of idea of communal ownership of property, but what you'll notice about that is that it's driven in individuals by the Spirit. So that, that's one thing that is that is that has to be kind of nailed down because some people will read the book of Acts and they'll come away with uh, Jesus or the church is a communist organization and that it's communist in its in its nature, but those are two different. I they're, they basically advocate for the same thing, but the result is two, something wildly different. In in communism, there is a government coercion towards the people to compel them to give up and to share so-called equally. But what ends up happening in situations like that, and I don't, I'm not trying to get on a political discourse or anything like that, but is the people that end up taking the property end up keeping it for themselves. <laughs> not, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but in a sinful situation where it's sinfully coerced and it's a program of the world, it produces worldly ends, right? It, that the people at the top that have the power of force end up keeping the lion's share of the proceeds, right, or of whatever it is, the property. That's not what you see in the, in the book of Acts. In fact, you see the Spirit coming into people and them willingly, out of their own generosity, giving up their property for those that have need. They sell their property and they give of the proceeds of their property to, the, to those that have need. One thing that you need to notice is in Acts chapter 5, there's, a, there's an episode of Ananias and Sapphira where uh, the people are giving of, the, of what they have, they're selling their property, and they're giving to the, the, the disciples, but they're doing so voluntarily. Nobody's telling them they have to do that. They're doing so voluntarily. Ananias and Sapphira are killed by the Spirit, not because they didn't give, but because they said they did, and they didn't. That was the, what they're killed for, and Peter says this to them, is lying, Right? They're not killed for, one, holding back some of the money. Or even if they had said, here's 50% of what we sold, and, th and that was genuine, they, they, gave it. they had the right to do that. But what they said was, here's all of it, and they kept back the profit for themselves. So that was the problem there in Acts chapter 5. So it, it underscores this, this central thing, is that the Spirit is driving this in the hearts of individuals who are well off to give what they have. So anything, you know, especially things that I said last week, which is, you know, I, I think there is a lot to take away from the Essenes and to really look at and to ask ourselves. Most of the time, I want to be very careful to not tell you that 
that you must then go and sell everything that you have in order to be a Christian, because there's an error that we have on both sides. One is the prosperity gospel. We, that's been well documented here. We've kind of gone through that quite a bit, and we will in the future too. But the prosperity gospel is one thing. The poverty gospel is another ditch that some people will run into, and the poverty gospel is also an anti-gospel. It's not, it, it basically says that you can curry God's favor going the opposite way by selling everything that you have. That's not true either. So we want to walk the road in the, in the middle that is Christ-like, being driven by the Spirit. And I think in some cases, we'll stand in front of the mirror and we'll evaluate the things that we have. And in some cases, the Spirit might actually be pushing you in some, some ways, one or the other, to give up th- some things that you, or to do without, in some cases, uh, than maybe what you're used to. And so I think we should be open to that. All right. Uh, so in the Essenes, another big aspect that I think is really important because it's complete, it, it at least distinguishes them from the other groups. One is in, the, in regards to free will. The Essenes essentially attributed everything in life to the will of God. So they believed in predestination, that everything was predestined, and that humanity was divided into two, the children of light and the children of darkness. And we see this idea, again, re, uh, reverberating through the New Testament of w- what it means to be saved. And it is, it is people who are called uh, by God's choosing. And so that, that represents this kind of germinating idea all the way before Christ of, that the Essenes are, are preaching in one way or another. So the Essenes are not a group that you ever see called out in the New Testament. Okay, that's true enough. But a lot of the ideas that they have are, are re-articulated in and through the pages of the New Testament. So I think there's a lot of influence that the Essenes have over the New Testament church community in the way that they uh, believed in following the Lord. Well, there's another group. Uh, there's predominantly those three, um, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, that are the big three philosophies that are practiced amongst the Jews. But Josephus added a fourth philosophy that could also be included in there because it permeated so many people's thinking and way of living, and that was the ideology of the zealots. They would represent a kind of fourth column or fourth philosophy in early um, uh, first and second century BC uh, Judaism. And I think we're going to see that you'll, you'll actually see the zealots mentioned in the New Testament, kind of, at least in passing a little bit. And you're going to hear a lot of the ideology in, I think, some of the questions that are asked by the disciples in the New Testament. But they're a fourth philosophy. And here's kind of just a little bit of the history of how they, how they at least some things uh, that we know of how they came to be. The group's believed to be founded by a man that goes by the name of Judas. He was a Galilean. And he arose in the city of Sephorus, which is a city right around the city of Nazareth, which I'm sure you've heard of before. And uh, he gathered a multitude, and this multitude that was kind of there with him broke into the royal armory, and they uh, availed themselves of the, of the trinkets that were there in the armory and used them as weapons to, uh, to form their first little attack. Let's say it that way. And um, they... The idea was that they would gain back the dominion that had been lost. Now, a lot of the time of the zealots is, is, is coming in a time that we haven't talked about yet, which is when the Romans come in. That'll be uh, maybe next week. It'll maybe the week after that. But, um, but when the Romans are in, the zealots kind of gain a little bit of, of force. Um, but not only that, the zealots also uh, used their power of persuasion in sort of a way of like name calling. Uh, you, you, you've probably recognized this before. It's sort of a tactic to get people on your side is to kind of say, if you're not with me, then you are this. So it's sort of a litmus test. If you are willing to take up arms with me, then you are really a Jew. But if you are not, then you belong in the category of the coward, right? So it's either A or B. You either pick one or zero, black or white, A or B. There is no in-between. You cannot see it any other way. And we'll, have, we'll frequently have this in, even inside churches. There'll be litmus tests for your 
real fervor for the kingdom and things like this. And, and anyone that's not like that is, you know, a coward. And so that is essentially how they cast um, anyone that was opposed or thought that their methods of overthrow of the government and their methods of, you know, revolution and things like that were maybe a little bit too far or perhaps not the right approach to any of this. Um, and so uh, they would call them cowards. Those, those are not real Jews. And they, the, the reasoning or the thinking went, if you continued to pay taxes to Rome, then you were submitting to mortal men as your Lord. And if you are submitting to mortal men as your Lord, then you are not only a coward, but a heathen. You're not truly one of one of God's. Uh, what's interesting about that is if you notice what they do here, it's sort of, again, along the lines of this tactic. If you continue paying taxes to mortal men, then you're submitting to them as your Lord. Well, that's not necessarily true. In fact, Jesus is going to come in and he's going to be cornered on this very issue. And the expectation, as the gospel writers make known in the scene, when the people ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The position that they put Jesus in is sort of what they hope is a trap. And the gospel writers tell you that, it's, that it was designed to be a trap. And the trap is, if he tells them, yes, pay taxes, then he's gone against the zealot. What that tells you in the Gospels, is that the crowd around them is highly influenced by the zealot. So, I want you to, if you can just kind of picture Jewish society, you have the Sadducees, which are largely made up of the rich aristocracy. So there's very few in the, amongst the commoner that are in that Sadducee group. Okay, the Sadducees are normally going to make themselves known. You're going to kind of know who they are. Then there's the Pharisee. That's another big, that's pro- those are probably the two biggest, most dominant groups in society. Their ideology was kind of pervasive. Remember, the Pharisees are the ones in the synagogues. They're the ones teaching all the people. So, you, you know, little John and little Peter, they grow up going to the synagogue in Galilee they're going to grow up hearing Pharisee ideology, okay? Traditions of the elders. They're going to hear faithfulness to the Lord. They're going to hear, you know, memorizing the Old Testament. They're going, to, they're going to hear that over and over again. So that's going to be in their consciousness. But then inside that Pharisee group are different ideas, okay? So the Essenes would, I, would align in large part with the Pharisees, but they're a subset of that. So they would take it in a very spiritual direction, wouldn't they? We saw that last week, a very spiritual direction. Fervor toward the Lord, dedication in prayer. They almost are like monks living out in the woods, right? And in their dedication to the Lord. We don't need property. We don't need, you know, we, we'll push away from any of that kind of stuff. So in a very kind of a spiritual sense, they, they sort of, but they align mainly with the Pharisees, but they're, they're taking a different direction. The Zealots are also Pharisees. They align themselves with the Pharisees, but they take a different approach. And the approach that they take is one of, which we're going to see in just a minute, a very physical kingdom. We've got to fight for this territory, guys. It's being taken from us, and we've got to fight to get it back. Look, our ancestors before us, they fought. The reason that you stand on the territory that you stand on is because of the blood of patriots that came before us. Right? So you've got to, you've got to stand up and take it. And if you don't if you don't take it back, then you're a coward, right? You can see how the ideology forms pretty easily, right? Probably hear some of that same thing going on nowadays, I think, to, to one degree or another. Uh, it, it is very much there. But, uh, and, and sometimes I think even as I, as I study this even a little bit more, uh, it, you kind of start to see patterns throughout human history. That like when people divide into groups, they're, like, they're kind of always the same group, right? They're always the same groups. You know, it's like you got the patriots and you got the, you know, it, it's, it's kind of always the same. Uh, it's very interesting, I think, but that's another topic for another day. So let's go into their, some of their beliefs and the ways that they thought and just kind of let's distinguish them to give us some help. Um, 
The zealot sect agreed with the Pharisees on most points, like I said, but possessed an inviolable attachment to liberty, calling only God their ruler and Lord and having no fear of death or any human rulers. So that's first and foremost, is liberty. That is the, the foremost thought in our mind, is freedom. Uh, I, you know, we're a congregation of Americans. We can, we can understand where they're coming from, right? Uh, we, we, get, we get the feeling, and there's probably many of us that, are, that align ourselves more with zealots, and we're kind of thinking, yeah. It's okay, you're in good company, because I, I'm pretty sure all 12 disciples were in one way or another zealots, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, they were, ideologically, heirs to the Maccabees. Remember the Maccabees, sometime before, about 100 years before this, they were uh, a gr- the group of Jews that said, look, we got to take the temple back. So, there's, there's two parts of the patriotism of the zealots. One is, I don't like living under a tyrannical government. Who does? Right? We can understand that. The other is, looking back at their history, at their forefathers, and going, man, I want the kind of courage that they had. The kind of people that were like, we are not going to sacrifice to Zeus. We're not going to do it. And you can't make us. And I will kill you if you try to make me. Right? And so you're looking back at them and going, wow, that's courageous. You know? I mean, again, not to draw too strict of a line between, a straight line between that and American culture, but who doesn't look back at George Washington and go, now that guy had some guts, right? I mean, he had, he had a lot of things that he did that were wrong, but courage was not, you know, one of those things, at least in, in many respects. So, uh, four bullet holes in the coat and all this, you know, crossing the Potomac. And, you know, that, those kinds of things are, are, are things that you look back and revere. And so the zealots are doing that. You know, they're looking back at their history and their, their loving liberty and freedom from tyranny. And they're currently facing the tyrannical overreach, you might say, of the Roman government and feeling the tax burden of pagan kings and lords and things like that. And so they're, you're going, hey, we, we can't have this. And there's only one way to have it. And that is to be like our forefathers, the Maccabees. And let's, let's take it back. So they insisted uh, on strict observance of the Sabbath, uh, obedience to dietary laws, and the requirement of circumcision and temple rituals. So they're Pharisee in their traditions. They see the traditions of the elders. They, you know, the, those kinds of, uh, not, not just the laws themselves, but then also the traditions and things like that that come with them. Now, contrary to the Sadducees, and many of the leadership class within Israel, they opposed the Greek language. That should come as no surprise to you. They're, they're, uh, they're pushing back against the Greek language. Why? It's not their language. What does it represent? Yes. It represents, well, it represents Roman or Greek rule, pagan rule. It, and... and All the people in Jewish history who started sacrificing to Zeus and started changing the temple into various forms of idolatry and all those kinds of things, what do they all have in common? Well, what they all have in common is that they capitulated to their overlords. They adopted the Greek language. Remember, the, the ideology of these groups that are forming in Israel are largely forming around this question of Hellenization. How much like Greeks can we become and still be God's people? Right? The, the, a very common form of uh, tyrannical rule is a, uh, I'm, I don't mean to be crass or anything, but a breed-them-out mentality. Right? When a, when a group comes in and wants to conquer another group, they can intermarry and they can have children and they can essentially that through that they the women will cave because their child is now half greek and half jew right well then their children are quarter jew and three quarters greek so before long in just a couple of generations you have completely taken over an entire culture well 
So the, the, the question of Hellenization is really one of who are we? It's identity, right? Identi- their identity is wrapped up in this. And so it's not long before adoption of the Greek language is the gateway drug, if you will, to losing our entire identity as God's people. And so you can understand why they would put a premium on the Greek language and be adamant and maintain the use of Hebrew in everyday life in Palestine. We insist on speaking Hebrew. I mean, you know, for people that are from another culture, how important is it to you that your kid would speak your language? I mean, if you move to another country and you had a child with somebody who is a, a, a you know, citizen of that country, you would teach your kid your home language, wouldn't you? Because they're, they're half that, whatever that is. You know? So, of course, you're going to do that. And so, the, it, it's a way of kind of uh, adopting your culture. It, it is, it is it's important. And even to, that, to this day, if you go share the gospel with somebody, and you share the gospel in English to a non-native English speaker, but they understand you, it doesn't have the same punch as it does if you were able to speak their language. It just doesn't. And, and that would be true of you if you, ha- you went to another country, trying to, somebody was trying to you know, explain something to you. It would make more sense in your own language. Um, so it's all of those things. Our identity is very t- closely tied to our language, whether we think it is or not. So uh, the way that they opposed Rome was that and really anybody else, Rome or Greece or anybody, any foreign oppressors, um, while with the Pharisees, it remained kind of a, a theoretical thing. Like, we are against Rome as a, just a, a doctrine. We, we do not appreciate Roman overreach. Um, but that kind of main, is sort of maintained in theory. But the reason the Zealots are looking at some of the Pharisees and Sadducees or anybody else, really, and calling them cowards is because their form of opposition actually took place in occasional raids and attacks. They, we're going to take up. No, I'm not talking about being opposed to the Romans. I'm talking about actually taking a knife in your hand and slitting a Roman soldier's throat. Are you willing to do that? And the moment you go, I mean, I don't see how that's necessary. I got a wife and kids. I got a job. I got, a, I got mouths to feed. I got, it does no good if I'm in prison or if I'm dead. They say, coward, right? <laughs> like, that's the, that's the litmus test. If you want to be a zealot, is, is this the lengths that you're willing to go to is to, uh, you know, actually go on a raid and attack Romans. So the price of admission to being a zealot is not one who is merely ideological, ideologically a zealot, but actually one who's willing to take up arms against Roman fight. Um, so, when uh, the so the zealots uh, prophesied their belief about salvation was that it was coming, and and that the the salvation that was coming to them was not what we see in Jesus. It was not the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, a salvation in terms of my relationship with God. It was a salvation of the situation we're in. We want to be relieved from this tyranny of these foreign invaders that have been oppressing us for years, much like our forefathers before us. And so what they thought was that there was a time when God would burst into the world with almighty power, and bring an end to the present age. All that would come to an end, he would overthrow Rome, Rome would be gone, and they would be, or whomever the oppressor was, you know, during that time, he would overthrow them, they would be ousted, and the kingdom would then be Israel's to have. He would turn the kingdom over to Israel. Maybe some of this is starting to ring a bell. Uh, And when this salvation came... They believed Jews would finally enjoy security from all foreign oppressors and a great new David would reign over them. How about that? So, I, you know, I don't know if, this is, if, this, if you're seeing this pattern yet. Are you seeing that no one ideology has it all figured out? Right? But they've all got a little bit. You see this? 
they've all got some pieces, and they've all got some little, and some less than others. You know, maybe the Essenes had a lot, but even not all of them became Christians, right? So maybe they have a good, a good sizable portion, and maybe the Pharisees have a little, and maybe even the Sadducees, dare I say, have maybe a, a corner of it. I don't know. Uh, and maybe the, the Zealots have a little bit, but nobody has it all. And if, you, if any of them were to just kind of sort of put it all together, you'd get actually the New Testament depiction of, here he comes, this is, this is what's happening. But it, it's almost as if, you know, I know this is a crazy idea, but it's almost as if there is, you know, some sort of almighty sovereign being behind the scenes bringing all these people into Jewish society at the same time. I don't know. I, I know that's so insane to hear, right? I know that comes way out of left field, and so it can't be true. But it's, it seems, uh, you know, not too far-fetched. So connected to the Zealots was a, a group that is sort of a branch, if you will, of the Zealots called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii is a group, and again, it's a, you might call this the Zealot Special Forces, okay? Um, this is a group named after a Sakari, which is a short dagger, essentially. And they were seen, uh, and this comes straight from the language of Josephus, these terrorists, as he calls them, uh, used to kill innocent people in public places. And the way they did it was with this small little dagger, they would come up behind people and kill them and walk off and leave them for dead. Um, zealots, okay? So, there you go. Or assassins. That, I mean, that is essentially what they are. Again, special forces, right? That's what they, that's essentially what they are. I've, I think the next slide is a picture of a Sakari. Yeah, that would do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, targeted, yeah, yeah, I would think it would be a Roman. Uh, in, in Josephus's mind, it's, uh, it's just any old person. I don't think that necessarily is the case. I think it's, um, uh, we don't have a record of who all they killed, but I, I think it would, the target would be people that are in opposition, not just any old Jew, you know, or anything like that. But, uh, but then the Sakari also frequently came upon villages belonging to their enemies with their weapons and plundered them, and set them on fire. So, again, here, here are the zealots going back to the time, you've heard this before, of Holy War. Um, Joshua, and th this is tapping into their roots, but what, what's interesting is that society is becoming more modernized, where the thought of the days of Joshua are anathema. No one would, why would you do that? Unless you are the dominant military like Rome, in which case, burn a village. You know, who cares? Nobody, you know, would think anything of it. But for you, as the one who is the servant, to then have an uprising against the government and burn a village of your enemies, that seems, uh, you know, let's clutch our pearls, you know, kind of, kind of deal. But um, that is what they did. They were tapping into the days of Joshua and, and saying like, hey, uh, this is what we're called to. This is what our ancestors did. This is what true zeal for the Lord really is, is a holy war. Uh, and uh, harim, which is the dedication of everything to the Lord and burning it all down. Uh, so this is in their Old Testament, and they're reading it, and they're going, why aren't we still these people anymore? Why, why are we not? We're cowards. That's the reason we're not, is what they would say. Uh, some, especially Josephus, had great disdain for the zealots. You can imagine that they had quite the reputation amongst <laughs> the rest of the Jews uh, for their tactics, uh, and he charged them with instigating the Jewish revolt against Rome. Uh, so again, there he is the one, uh, you know, the one that instigated the revolt is, are the Jews, which will then eventually draw the ire of Rome and uh, will bring about a, a collapse of, of Jerusalem. Um, so although they gave themselves uh, the name Zealot, because it, it, it indicates their zeal for what was good. They were uh, really, you know, zealous or, uh, for the holy things of God or whatever, or the way God wanted them to, to fight back. 
The name did not rightly describe them on account of those they had unjustly treated by their wild and brutish disposition. They weren't, they didn't believe in kindness in battling things by, you know, by grace and mercy and peace. And they weren't peacemakers. And so you can imagine that they developed a, not only a reputation, but people that also hated them and saw that their tactics were not, were in, in fact not courageous, but were brutish. They were nasty. They were, that's not the way to do anything. That's not the way we need to handle ourselves as God's people. Uh, so they were more than simply a radical political group. Uh, within the state, who stirred up trouble with the Romans, they attracted to themselves many of the riffraff of their day with gangster tendencies. But they were essentially a company of Jewish patriots moved by deep religious conviction. So this was the other part. Was One was, here are your tactics. The other is the company that you keep. And I'm looking at the people that you're attracting to your cause, and they tend to be the disenfranchised people in society and I don't really want to be seen with them. So they sort of became other in some respects. However, now this is a read that I'm taking on the New Testament as I'm looking through some of these passages. Uh, I think what's common, and, and again, I, I, I'm drawing these lines, I think, to our own political uh, world because I think... W- that's probably the most in our consciousness right now, and we can kind of see those sorts of parallels. But you can imagine groups of, various groups of, of maybe people that have conservative ideologies that you might not necessarily agree with everything, but have influenced you to a great degree on some aspects, and you kind of go, I mean, yeah, it, it would be great if we went back to the Constitution or something, something along those lines. Or like, I may not see everything eye to eye with XYZ group, but, but I do get where they're coming from, and I do understand some of their way of thinking. Well, I think the zealots represented, even though they represented that kind of firebrand wing of Israel's domestic politics, some of their ideas seem to have filtered into the consciousness of the everyday working class Jews. I think in the end, their patriotism and their desire to have freedom from tyranny really did resonate with the vast majority of the working class men and women in Israel. And the reason I think that is several things. First, I want you to look at Matthew 10, 1 to 4. I won't read it all, but well, why not? Jesus called the, called the 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You notice there are a couple of people that are called out in there specifically by their, their the title that would bring about the most humility is... Matthew the tax collector, and Simon the zealot. Knowing what we know about zealots in the day, they are outcasts, might be a way to say that. They are a radical group, a group that is like, oh, you're a zealot. Mm. Just like, oh, you're a tax collector. Mm. Right? Draws that kind of natural reaction to somebody that is other, and they're one of Jesus' apostles, which is amazing. That here are these radical outcasts who have wild ideologies about the Messiah and about the kingdom and about all this stuff. And it's so far afield. And it doesn't even touch what Jesus is going to actually do or what they're going to become. And they are included in his inner circle, which is amazing. I think that's so unbelievable. But then, uh, I want you to hear their questions. I want you to hear the questions of the disciples. Just, it's just a couple. And, and just think about this. Um, 
As they heard these things, this is Luke 19.11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Meaning, God was going to come back and overthrow the Romans. He was going to get them out of there. This is reflected in Luke's other writing in Acts, Acts 1-6. So when they, came together, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You understand their question is not one of proper theology. They don't understand what's about to happen. The Spirit has not come yet. They are right now assuming that what Jesus is going to do is he's going to flip the kingdom back over to Israel. It's the same, essentially the same thing that Luke is reflecting in Luke 19.11. is saying they thought that this was going to take place right now. That is zealot ideology. That's probably not only zealots, but I think it's predominantly influenced by the zealot way of thinking that Jesus is going to, right now, restore the kingdom to Israel and he's going to drive out the Romans. He's the Messiah. He rose from the dead at this point in Acts 1-6. And so that is the natural outcome for what happens. The Romans are gone. We're in control now. Is this the time where that happens? And then Jesus disappears. And in 1911, Luke tells you, they all, it looks like they all supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. So when Jesus tells them this, it's not for you to know, but a time that God has fixed on his own authority. For now, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Bye. He deuces out and is like gone. And, they, and they're left just standing there looking at the sky. Like, what just happened? And it's so weird in Acts 1. They're standing there looking at the sky for so long that God sends an angel to come down next to them and say, get moving. Now, we don't know how long that was. And I don't know if God, I don't think in God's sovereign mind that he didn't see this coming for sure, but, but so long that he sort of just goes, you're going to have to go tell him. <laughs> what? Okay, fine. You know, and <laughs> tells him, okay, let's move, move it along, guys. He's going to come back the same way he left. Don't worry. But they are thinking that this has got to happen now. And that's a zealous way of thinking. What changed? What, what was the MO? And why was it not that Jesus chose this time to hand the kingdom over to Israel? I think Jesus gives us that answer, not to the disciples. He actually gives it to Pilate. And he gives it in, in John 18. And uh, it is starting in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. Uh, oh, sorry, I'll give you time to turn there. John 18, 33, if you want to. You can follow along. I didn't include this because I just thought about it. <laughs> so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. This verse is where zealot ideology ends. Right here. Jesus explains where the zealots got it wrong. My kingdom is not of this world. You notice there's a transition in Acts, between Acts 1 and Acts 2. And the transition is the Spirit comes. When the Spirit comes to the, the apostles uh, and indwells them, we saw last week, they become decidedly Essene in their approach to the church. They share what they have, they preach the gospel, and they die. And they go into the chains, into the gallows, crucified, 
boiled alive, pushed off buildings, stoned to death, they go willingly. They don't fight. Why? That's the answer. My kingdom is not of this world. Here's the difference. If my kingdom were of this world, oh, we would fight. We would fight. We would have daggers. We'd have swords. We would kill. We would respond the way the zealots want us to respond. We would do that. If it were of this world. But when we take a, a position of spiritual war, where the war is over ideology and preaching and teaching, many will call us cowards. Because you don't stand up and fight and take this country back. But Jesus says, kingdom is not of this world. That doesn't mean you don't fight. That means you're fighting is spiritual. That means the preaching of the gospel is the kind of fighting you are to do. Right? So, when we look at that, there's going to be a lot of pushback. There may even be pushback in this room, and that's fine. And I'm, I'm okay with differences of opinion. You're welcome to that. Um, there's going to be some that's, that even say, well, you know, we, we have a right to those things. We do. There'll be a voting booth that comes up soon in our future. Nearly every year, there's some sort of vote that we've got, almost. Big ones come up every two, four years. Um, and we have a right to go into the voting booth, don't we? And we do. And you should. And you should exercise that right. And you've been given it. What happens if it's taken away? What happens if it disappears? Can you function as a Christian under communism? The answer is yes. Because Christians have functioned under communism for a long time. Can you function under other forms of tyranny? The answer is yes. Brothers and sisters right now are in North Korea and Iran and China and they're growing like crazy. Can you function without a constitution as a Christian? Yes. Now, do you want that? No. I don't want that. I'll vote to keep that from happening. Sure. But can I as a Christian? Yeah. What will I do physically? What will I do Keep that from happening in this country. I'll preach the gospel. I'll preach the gospel. I'll share the gospel with my neighbor. I'll explain to them why God would have them act and be something different. But here's what I think we miss so much. And, and it's, it's very hard for people, I think, to see this. You can change laws all you want. If the hearts of the people have not changed, it does not matter. Roe v. Wade was repealed how long ago now? Is it, I don't know how long it's been, literally. It's been a year? About a year? Yeah, 14 months. Is it good that it was repealed? Absolutely. Give me a vote. Every time I'd have voted for it. I'll keep voting for more extreme measures too, right? I will. Have the hearts of the people changed? Not one bit. What will change the hearts of the people? The gospel. You have the solution to the change that's necessary, and it's not a legal change. I think, personal opinion, all right? I'm just going to step out here. This is me giving my personal opinion. I think that if you revere Jesus, you come to worship the Lord, I think you will start to see patterns of government one way or the other. I think you will start to kind of steer towards freedom. I think you will, you will push that direction. I think you will be very pro-life. 
I think you will be, I think there's a lot of things that will change about your political ideology. I do think that if you, if you become a Christian, I think there will be definitely some ways that you begin to think politically. But being pro-life doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't change anything about your eternal destiny. So that's what I'm saying is like, we can fight a political war all day long, but Jesus has already told us, it's not a, my kingdom, it's not this world. Nothing's, nothing about that. You can have the kind of constitution you want all day long. But it's not going to produce the outcomes that you're looking for. Not until the people are saved. Questions? Comments? Yeah, right. Yeah, you can see, a, a, too, a marked difference when a government, let's say, adopts a Christian ideology. You can see a radical difference in the way that they treat people, right? I mean, even the history of this country, largely founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and which is decidedly pro-life, by the way. Even, I was l- looking at this the other day, when... U.S. launches a rocket. They launch it out over the water. In case something happens, it goes into the water. Doesn't kill humans. When China does it, right over land, baby. Shortest route, they don't care. Because it, so there's a difference in, in not communism and versus the American Constitution or constitutionalism. It's not the difference. The difference is in Christianity versus not. Yeah, the founding on Judeo-Christian principles, it, it, is, it does radically shape the way that you think about things, for sure. Yeah, uh, Good. Uh, this man, uh, if, I'm going to read his name in the Bible, so I don't have to look him up. But he was in Wakusa, Missouri, and uh, he was here for about 25 years or so. Yeah. Yeah, they were Christian. That was the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, the you stories are endless of you know what what Europe was like prior to Christianity coming in, of barbarism and cannibalism, all kinds of things uh, that's happening. You see it in any country where there's barbarism. It, the change is not in a constitution or in laws, because His kingdom is not His world. It is in affiliation with Christ. That, that is the fundamental change between a person that acts one way and a person that acts the other. So for us, you know, when we take the ideology that Christ is giving and saying, here's where the zealots were bankrupt, is we might see a lot of our own tendencies in sort of the zealous way of thinking, zealot way of thinking. But what Christ is coming in and saying is, You're, you are fighting, and you cannot start to think that your spiritual fight is cowardice. The fight on the grounds of faith is real fighting. It is real fighting. It makes real and lasting change. Sharing the gospel does. Telling somebody the good news of Christ and seeing them repent and trust in Christ forever actually produces the kind of change that the zealots could only hope for. And so the argument for the church is fight that fight. You have to fight it personally in your own personal life, but then you have to give that fight to other people. You're recruiting them into the army, not to be too hokey or <laughs> you know, or whatever. You are recruiting people into the army of Christ. But the army is not one that takes up physical, literal swords. It's one that actually preaches the gospel. That is the fighting. Now, if you take that thought that I just said, 
and read Revelation, you'll see that imagery coming up, especially Revelation 14 in particular, where Christ is said to be marching and all the people, the 144,000 is labeled, march with him wherever he goes. And where he goes is to death. And they march there with him. And it's even said in the previous couple of chapters, in chapter 12, they love not their own lives even unto death. That's the point that he's making, is that as the army of Christ, we don't take up physical swords. We take up spiritual swords. We're preaching the gospel. And the, the irony of it is that we actually are killed in battle. And we do it willingly. And the world goes, you're not going to, this is a gun that I've got here. You're not, you're not going to bend the knee. This is a gun. Are you crazy? And your answer is, yes. I'm crazy. <laughs> I am a real zealot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the cause you've called us to. It's so hard to parse all of the things that are in front of us and to both walk in this world but not be of it, to, to tread lightly where we are in not holding the things that we've got too closely, yet also thanking you for them as a blessing. Freedom is a blessing. The freedoms that we have is a blessing from your hand. But not holding on to them so tightly that if they disappear, it's like somebody has done something to our God. How do we do that? Help us. We need help. To be able to tread lightly in this world as sojourners, as foreigners, as strangers, and yet also care for it so deeply that we want our neighbors to know Christ, that we care for them and we care for the community around us and we want it to flourish. So, so help us to walk that balance. It's not easy. And I pray that everything we do be looking to strike that balance perfectly. We can only do that with Christ as our guide, the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. So we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.